everyone and welcome back to episode number two of our Talking Tech News podcast. In case you've forgotten or you just don't know us yet, I'm Abby, the digital editor for Biotechniques. And I'm Tristan, the assistant editor. Now we have got a great episode lined up for you. It's all about our March tech news topic, Organoids. These wonderful and slightly weird pieces of 3D cell culture are popping up in all lines of research, from drug discovery to developmental biology and even neurobiology. And I know last time we promised you a really extra special guest for this episode, so you didn't have to listen to just me and Abby go on at each other again. Um, And I think we've really delivered. So I'd like to introduce to you Jenny Strayton, Assistant Editor at FSG. Hi Jenny, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a fun fact about yourself? Or maybe let everyone know what your favourite birthday present was from your kind and generous colleagues. (laughs) So hi, I'm Jenny. Um, I... As you said, I'm an assistant editor at FSG. I'm recently graduated with a neuroscience degree and I wrote this month's Organized Tech News. Um, so as a fun fact, um, I guess you could say it's quite rare that I took my neurosurgeon for a pint at the local pub um, as a thank you for not killing me and not messing up my hair too much when he took out my brain tumor. <laughs> and for a favorite present, well, my colleagues were very lovely but I would say it's a cute little blue mug because the other ones seem more like a gift for you, weren't they, Tristan? I'm not sure about that. I think everyone can appreciate a milk frother equally. So just so we're all clear, by the way, FSG is Future Science Group, which is the publisher that publishes Biotechniques, just so we're all on the same page. So, Jenny, you've really utilised your neuro background in writing this piece and focused on how organoids are being utilised to progress understanding in neurobiology. The development of neurological research throughout history has taken a narrative from reactionary discoveries to analogous research and now to more representative studies. Would you like to take us through some of the cornerstones in this story? I mean, uh, with neuroscience, it's so broad. So the way this story has developed, even in the last, say, 100 years, has been pretty insane. It's in, just in the last 20, 30 years, it's one of the biggest developing areas of science, you'd say. Um, But I guess for the major cornerstones, in terms of reactionary, (laughs) that's not a word, is it? Reactionary? Reactionary. Reactionary, yeah, okay. Um, So in terms of reactionary discoveries, one of the key ones in terms of understanding cognition would be, as the one I mentioned in my piece, um, you've got Paul Broca, who observed two individuals who had impaired speech production, and then linked them to some head trauma that they'd have in their dominant, it's usually the dominant side of their brain, in this case left, in most people it's left, Um, but their frontal lobe. Um, So this region of the brain was then named after him um, as being important in producing speech. Um, And, I mean, most areas of the brain have a Latin name and a name after an individual who discovered what they did. And most also have diseases. So Broca has Broca's aphasia. Is there a Broca gene as well? Broca. Oh, it's Broca. It's a different thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Ignore it. That's breast cancer. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, can't really mention Broca without Wernicke, who's a different guy, same idea. He saw impaired language processing with, and he linked it to damage in the dominant temporal lobe. Um, which gave Wernicke's aphasia, 
which meant you could produce speech, but you couldn't understand it. So the two of them are often seen together. Then in another key cornerstone in terms of amnesia, you've got Henry Mullianson, mostly known as HM, who had temporal lobe epilepsy. The surgeons figured, hey, it starts in the temporal lobe, we'll remove them. Um, which also meant removing the anterior two-thirds of his hippocampi. And, of course, the hippocampus is important in memory production, so when you take it out, you get severe anterograde amnesia and, um, in HM's case, moderate retrograde as well. I say, of course, the hippocampus is important in memory production, but it's because of HM that we knew that, so they didn't know it then, but he helped. Um... The last one that I mentioned in the piece was Phineas Gage. Um, I don't think you'd ever read a history of psychology textbook without noticing Phineas Gage. And he had a large iron rod that went straight through his head and destroyed the majority of his left frontal lobe. Um, And he was left with a completely altered personality. And it's it's shocking that he actually survived. But he was... Had irrational anger, was completely muted in essentially all other forms of what he used to be, a completely changed man. So it showed the really important sides of psychological aspects of the brain. For the analogous research, more in vitro studies, that's rather than neurology, that's more help with structure and histology. So you've got the father of modern neuroscience, really, is. Santiago Ramón y Cajal, that's Spanish GCSE coming in with that pronunciation. He had these first drawings of the neuron that we know of today. And I think they came around in like the early 1900s. So really when they just started with in vitro histology and my microscopy. But then with this histology, yes, it shows you a lot about the structure and histology, but you can't really see how it works in terms of the whole brain and you can often only focus on one type of cell and of course the brain is made up of so many different types of cells it's not just the neuron you also have the astrocyte the oligodendrocyte the microglia like they all interact you can't gather a picture of what the brain does by just looking at the neuron um so from this you can then use animal models yes they have all the cells there but humans the human brain is so different to that of an animal. Like, they have the biggest cortex, um, and really the cortex is what makes most humans human. Um, so you can't really model most neurological disorders accurately on an adam- animal, which is why there's still so much difficulty in translatability when it comes to animal models and drugs, etc. because really they're so different which is why this new development is pretty impressive because creating a mini-brain that, well, let's say mini-brain, um, this organoid that you can look in a dish that's relatively similar to a human brain, it's pretty impressive and shows great promise. Yeah, so the, the organoids are kind of the next step in the narrative, really, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and so when, when do these first start to emerge in research and um, what makes them so exciting? So I think it was the first study was around 2013 by Lancaster et al. that I referenced in the text. Um, But really it was just in the last year, year, two years, if you just Google cerebral organoids into Google, 
the majority of the research is from the last year and they've kind of just exploded. Um, but essentially, they're miniature versions of the organ. They contain the cell types, the tissue types, all that you could really see in the like real brain, but in a teeny tiny version. Um, and they're grown from induced pluripotent stem cells um, and can like kind of be manipulated to model the basic 3D anatomy of the organ you want. Um, and they've used them to model lots of different organs. I think all of them, really. You've got lungs and pancreases. But the I think the cerebral organoid is getting quite a big hype about it because it is so... It holds so much potential for what is currently fairly limited field. So when the 3D model of the brain, they show distinct regionalization in some areas. Um, for example, they show a distinct forebrain, which is really important in differentiating human and animal brains. Because in early development and in utero, when the nervous system is early first developing, you have the forebrain, the midbrain, and the hindbrain. And the forebrain is what develops into the cortex and the diencephalon, so the thalamus and the hypothalamus. Um, and it's the cortex that is so unique in humans. So just being able to sh model this forebrain in a dish is pretty insane. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> so how could organoids begin to overcome some of the big challenges in neurology? Um, like psychiatric disorders, they're so common. I feel like they're incre becoming increasingly common. And we don't really know a lot about them physi physiologically. I feel like I'm right in saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess. Just just that. <laughs> continue. <laughs> Let's continue with my rumblings. So I think one of the biggest challenges that's currently faced in neurology is the lack of knowledge of a T0, so the point where a disease starts. The brain is so it has such great plasticity and it can compensate for any damage which means it's often hard to know where it starts because as soon as clinical symptoms begin then it's too late to do anything about it really like with parkinson's disease there's approximately 60 percent neuronal loss before you even observe any of the motor symptoms so by that point it's kind of a bit late to go back and fix that significant damage so almost because the brain's so good at adapting to challenging situations, it makes it then quite difficult to study. Yeah, exactly. So with these organoids, you could potentially model the different theories that are around for starting points and just see where it leads. If you start, make up your own T0, just see where it goes, then it could end up into Alzheimer's or any disease really, or it could not. And then that helps prove that, okay, we need to start again. It clearly wasn't that starting point um, because you need the starting point in order to even consider early diagnosis. But yeah, like you said, with psychiatry, it's currently it's really hard to model both in vitro and in animal models because, I mean, it's a mouse. They can't really tell you if it's depressed. Um, and a lot of it relies on the theory. So yeah, the main hypothesis for, let's say, depression and a lot of mental health disorders is the monoamine hypothesis but that's not really been proven it's a hypothesis um yeah so it has lots of controversy because a big argument for for the hypothesis is that you give drugs and they work but these antidepressants further 
change the chemical imbalance. So you don't know if it's actually the drugs that are causing an imbalance in the first place. So a key part of that is how antidepressant drugs, whilst trying to um, treat depression, can then actually go on to lead people to have suicidal thoughts and um, stuff like that as a side effect, um, which is obviously completely the opposite of what you want them to be achieving. Is that kind of the point you were trying to make? Exactly, yeah. So the monoamine hypothesis is essentially saying that you have an imbalance of your um, neurotransmitters, particularly like serotonin. So then you have some of the drugs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like um, your Prozac and that famous ones, the fluoxetine, um, that is preventing the reuptake of your serotonin. So in preventing reuptake, you're potentially further creating an imbalance. So it's a highly theory-driven concept. There's no way to really prove it. Um, and even with the development of organoids, I feel like it's a difficult thing to model because, say, with depression, it's a cent- an organoid is just cells in a dish. So even if you model the monoamine hypothesis, you can't really tell if these cells are depressed because it's just a bunch of cells. <laughs> um, so in regards to psychiatry, it would probably have to be involved genetics when the genetic base of psychiatric disorders is pretty unclear and a lot of them are highly polygenetic. But there are some with known heritability, like schizophrenia and autism spectrum disorder. So of anything, it's likely that these organoids could be really helpful in studying those, particularly autism. Um, There's been quite a few studies on that, as I mentioned in the text, because that is one that you can model, you could take the genetics and go back, see how it developed in utero, because it doesn't show in kids until they're about two, but it is believed to start in utero. So if you can take the stem cells or take the cells of kids with autistic spectrum disorder, then induce the pluripotent stem cells and grow the organoids from them and you can see them develop and as they grow and as mentioned in the text like they were shown to grow faster and larger which could be a clear clear biomarker for when diagnosing it you could see at an earlier stage potentially if the child will grow into autism before they actually show clinical symptoms okay interesting so you can kind of map the progress and the development of the um, disorder as it develops in the dish in front of you as opposed to having to try and study it well impossibly in utero as a child develops essentially yeah so you i mean i suppose there are ways of, of studying in utero but it's dangerous and difficult um so being able to take it outside of the body and into this model um is really helpful um and they've shown yeah when you take the st- cells of a child with ASD, um, there's, it grows faster, has a thicker cortical plate, and it has shown overexpression of the FOXG1 gene. Um, so this could act as a genetic biomarker because um, the FOXG1 gene is important for growth. So it links to the larger brain thicker cortical plate. And though ASD is polygenetic, um, this could be one clear biomarker that has a more important role than the others potentially. Brilliant. So 
if these organoids can help explore issues that have previously been inaccessible to study due to the limitations of in utero research, could these organoids prove useful in helping researchers to explore neural development and the pathways that underlie our learning processes? Um, well, learning processes is a tricky one because, of course, they're cells. They can't really learn, per se. But the underlying basis of a learning process is the synaptic strengthening and synaptic plasticity and long-term potentiation. That's more memory than learning, I suppose. Um, and this synaptic plasticity and the growing of neuronal connections starts in utero. So if you can show how this starts and where it develops from in the developing brain, it could link it and show how these networks develop a bit more and show you could potentially use it to stimulate the synaptic strengthening, um, initiating action potentially in one region more than another. You could see where connections might become compromised in developing other disorders. They're likely to show great potential in being able to model how the connections form, which is really interesting. Um, and I mean, it, they're fairly limited as they don't survive long. Because when you're growing as a child, you have so many more neurons than an, as an adult. It's the whole lose it, use it or lose it mentality. So when you don't use these neurons, they don't strengthen, so you lose them. Um, so as you grow up, you're going to use some neurons more than others, so they become stronger and you lose the ones that you don't use. So that's the synaptic pruning that improves your cognition as you learn and get older. Um, so these cerebral organoids are more likely to show the initial rapid development of connections rather than more sophisticated learning processes, but even this early development is pretty exciting. That's really interesting. I'm definitely learning a lot today. So are there any key limitations to the organoid approach? Could we be investing too much faith into these models? Well, it's important to remember they are just simplistic models their cells in a dish so people do say the term that mini brain is kind of a misnomer because it's not a mini brain it is a collection of cells that form tissues and cellular groups highly similar to that of a brain but as of now it's really in early stages of development often when you grow them they show variability and they don't have the same localization as a full brain um also because, yes, they might be good at modelling the developing brain and could provide answers that we don't currently know. Because we don't currently know these answers and we don't really understand the developing brain, that doesn't mean that could mean we're not actually modelling it, if you understand what I'm saying. We don't know how accurate the model is if you don't know, don't fully understand what it is you're modelling. So I feel like there is potential and it looks promising, but you never know in science i guess so you say it's you can't really consider it as a model brain um but kind of circling back to that um point about the plasticity in brains and trying to use organoids to um sort of study that synchronization and um strengthening of neurons and synapses could this potentially lead to the creation of something akin to consciousness in human brains uh, is that a possibility? Is there some sort of ethical debate around there? Or could I be being slightly ludicrous there? 
there's there is quite a big debate um but really i think it depends on how you want to define consciousness and i mean as of now there is no definition for consciousness so you can't really say these organoids might become conscious or leads to the creation of consciousness because there's nothing to measure it for you don't really have an underlying understanding of what consciousness is and and they can't feel pain because we know brains don't have pain receptors so and the brain the central nervous system doesn't actually have that many receptors themselves which means they don't they might not be feeling anything it's it's a tricky one and i feel like i am not qualified to really comment on it part of me thinks it's a little silly because they're cells um and i think the debate here is getting it is certainly interesting so i guess that's quite interesting you pointed out the um, brain organoids can't feel pain because they don't have pain receptors but obviously there's also organoids that are, that are other organs so they have pain receptors in them so could they potentially feel pain well they're not connected to a central nervous system so no if you were to put them all together then potentially but if they have receptors the receptors aren't connected to anything so you're not going to feel anything that's like if you cut off an arm you still have a receptor in the arm but it's not connected to you so you don't feel it i guess my point about the receptor point would be if you i guess if you've created something which so what am I trying to say? So if you've created something which hasn't got any receptors, it wouldn't necessarily be able to experience consciousness as we perceive it, um, not being able to feel pain. Obviously, there's no active sight, hearing, touch. Um, I'm just trying to sound... It's not that it's I'm not going, got receptors, going, it's not got sensory yeah, receptors. Got, yeah, exactly. I just find it ridiculous. Like, there seems almost a bigger debate between scientists about these the consciousness of these cells and why it might be unethical to use those. But then there's consciousness and then there's sentience. So animals, are, they're presumably conscious, but only the great apes, I think, are the only animals banned in UK. So why should these cerebral organoids end up being banned, which people are calling for them to be, but testing on animals isn't? Um, I, yeah, like I, I guess it's strange that we associate more with a ball of cells than we would with animals or things that we continually test on today. Exactly. So I think when it comes to ethical questions, it's very ambiguous. And I feel like I'm definitely not qualified to comment. Do you have an opinion? What, on using organoids? Yeah. I think, like, go for it. Yeah. They're living cells, but... I think until you start connecting them They're to like... They're not human. Yeah. Until you start connecting them to like eyes, ears, like... They have been connecting them to a retinoid. That's cool. Let's talk about that a bit. I can't remember the rest of it, but I just remember what? reading a headline to about it. retina. Retinoid cells. So what are the next developments with organoids and how could they direct where the narrative of neurology goes next? Um, well, there have been pretty big developments and lots of different directions that it could go in the future because just in the last few years people have kind of put their own spin on it and really it should just balloon out and go in anywhere really there's people they put a blood-brain barrier on it which is going to be really great in pharm neuropharmacology because a big issue with 
Nyamara Farmer is the drug delivery of getting things past the blood brain barrier. So having a model for it is going to be really helpful. Um, they've managed to vascularize them by adding in a more vascular organoids, mixing them with the cerebral organoids, and yay, vascularized brain. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that could be really helpful in modeling stroke and finding ways to prevent the spread of damage um, and reduce side effects. Um, there's potential in personalized medicine. You can, instead of doing a kind of trial and error method on the patient themselves and just give them drug after drug after drug, you could take some biopsy, take a biopsy rather, um, induce the stem cells, grow the organoid, and then essentially do the trial and error on the organoids to see which is going to take and then give that to the individual, which reduces their chance of reacting badly to it and side effects. So that's pretty great. There's regenerative medicine. Um, something that's really cool is essentially using organoids to make spare parts. So adding t- tissue that has been grown into the living tissue, and they've done it, they've added human tissue or human organoid into a brain of a mouse, and it's shown that they've the two tissue supplies have started sharing a blood supply and forming connections. So it's pretty cool if you are missing part of a brain, just put some more in and it'll grow. Um, And it has shown that there's better engraftment between organoids and neural progenitor cells. So putting in these pre-grown, pre-developed mini brains is better than putting in these cells that will eventually grow into them themselves. Um, it's cool. Um, so is there a chance that this could sort of overtake stem cell therapy as the next kind of, I guess, what people view as kind of a miracle cure for different um, degenerative issues? I mean, it essentially is a form of stem cell therapy because they are created from stem cells and it's just yet another way of manipulating these stem cells to the greatest effect because these stem cells are huge and have great potential. Um, so really, it's just another direction for stem cells rather than a replacement of stem cells, I would say. Okay. Um, but, yeah, as I said, just like the last two, uh, one, two years, it's improved so rapidly. It's really hard to say where it could direct the narrative of neurology next because um, if you just think about it a few years ago, you would never have thought that they could create a brain in a dish with a blood supply and a blood-brain barrier. Like, it sounds kind of crazy, so really I have no idea where it will go next it's but, a difficult job to predict what yeah. people will do in the next five years um, but I'm sure it will be pretty cool whatever they do okay well brilliant um, thank you very much Jenny for joining us today your insights on neurology have been wonderful and I have learned a lot about what is going on with brain organoids which is very cool very cool stuff so that's all we have for this episode of Talking Tech News Podcast that was number two um so if you haven't listened to number one that's also very interesting i was talking a lot about sustainability in labs um and then the next one we have got a very interesting topic it's going to be on structural biology and in particular membrane proteins so thanks very much for coming on jenny um and that's all from me and abby and uh thanks very much for listening you're very welcome thank you for having me um hope i made some sense and didn't ramble too much 
fun times. Wow. <laughs>